The Pinball Network is online. Launching the Aussie Pinball Podcast. Fortnite's episode of the Aussie Pinball Podcast. Welcoming us to this episode is Midnight Oil with their ode to asbestos mining in Australia, Blue Sky Mine. And although a dark history, I picked a mining song to celebrate WA's main export, the mining industry. And joining us from all the way over in Western Australia is Anthony Cirillo. I first met Anthony overseas, which we'll discuss as a tournament player who's rather new to the tournament scene, but an actually brilliant player. In this episode, we find out all about West Australia, its charms and its foibles and its dangers. And we also hear from Anthony about one of his favourite pinball competitors, that being Mr. Stephen Bowden. I recorded this episode prior to the Brisbane Masters, where Anthony popped over to see how it'd go against Australia and the world's best, and ended up facing off with Steve in the final two players in a series of best of five games. For the Brisbane Masters title, which is Australia's largest pinball tournament. Anthony put up a great showing, just losing to Steve three games to two, but cemented himself as one of Australia's top players. On to find out more about his history with pinball, what made him get into tournaments, what his current interests are, and I hope you enjoy the listen as we have a chat. And this week's Aussie Pinball episode, we are moving all the way across Australia to a place I've only visited a couple of times, so I don't know much about, and I need education. And that place is West Australia, in particular Perth. And joining me is Anthony, who is a sand groper, I think we would call him. Would that be right, Anthony? Yeah, Dr. John. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, that is the term for Western Australians, is a sand groper. And we'll use this episode for all the East Coast inhabitants who don't get over there. So those overseas who aren't aware, what's the flying time from Sydney to Perth? There's a predominant wind, actually. So going from Perth to Sydney is about three and a half to four hours. And coming back from Sydney to Perth is closer to four and a half hours. So, right. yeah, it's actually longer one way than the other. Because you're going downhill one way, aren't you? That's right, yeah. The wind blows you. Now the wind blows from west to east across Australia. So And there's a, there's a yeah. funny thing with our map is always crooked. Perth is actually more north than Sydney, isn't it? That is true, yeah. They, they tend to turn Australia to make it look, you know, a bit more symmetrical. But the reality is Perth is, yeah, it's actually just north of Newcastle if you were to have it in New South Wales. On the actual lines of latitude. About 32 degrees south. Yeah. It's like when you look at maps of America, they always stick, stick Alaska down near Hawaii or something. They do weird stuff with <laughs> cartography. It's strange. But uh, so born and bred in Perth, is that right? No, I'm actually from a country town about an hour and a half south of Perth called Waruna. 
it's a very small town. Yeah, so I grew up down that way and uh, spent a lot of time in Mandra, which is another a bigger town that's about an hour south of Perth, and then moved to Perth when I started university. Okay. Mm. Rural West Australia. <laughs> you talk about parts of the East Coast not being populated. What have you got in Perth? You've got Fremantle? Yeah, Fremantle. Yeah. Broome. <laughs> then a whole lot of yeah. up Aboriginal names in between. Yeah, well, Perth to Broome is a long way. That's about 2,400 k, so about 1,500 miles for yep. the Americans. Um, it's about a two and a half hour flight, and that's you don't even cross the state border. So that's uh, something actually I like to tell Americans, especially people from Texas, because you know they like to talk about Texas and how big it is and stuff. And yeah, Western Australia is actually the biggest state in the world. So Ooh. yeah, it's uh, about four times the size of Texas. So. <laughs> ah, suck on them eggs. <laughs> yeah, if you see on a map, it's about a third of Australia. So it's pretty much the western third, and the border is just one big straight line across the continent. And what percentage is desert? 80, 85, maybe more. And except for that that small jewel down the bottom left, uh, that is Margaret River. Yeah, there's like the southwest corner is pretty green. Uh, there's a lot of forest down that way. And in the north Kimberley region, that's quite green as well because it's tropical. And there's a lot of cyclone rainfall and stuff up there. So, yeah, you've got like one green bit in summer at the top and a green bit in winter at the bottom. I made the mistake of the not understanding the distances in WA. I was there at a conference about four years ago with a visiting English doctor who said, I want to go to Margaret River. And we said, why don't we go down there for lunch? We'll have a long lunch and then come back to the conference. Started out just So we ordered a ta- you're laughing already. We ordered a cab from the middle of Perth and said, take the three of us down to uh, Margaret River lunch. And he looked and says, okay. I this think is going to be a good day for $180 down. And it was about 240 coming back because it was big out. And we thought, yeah, that's... Probably not the smartest thing to go is to go to Margaret River for lunch. <laughs> yeah. I suppose you actually went through with it once uh, once you worked out how far it was. Well, we didn't know. Do we just kept looking at the meter, going, "What have we done?" <laughs> yeah, it's about. I think it's about three hours, or maybe a bit less, to Margaret River. So, mm. yeah, it is. It's a long way. Yeah, mm. for sure. But but some of the best wines outside South Australia, I'd have to say. Yeah, I actually did find that uh, when I was in Adelaide. Uh, not that long ago, a couple of years ago, that there were some really good wineries in Adelaide. We are quite proud of our wineries down in the southwest. And, but, yeah, Adelaide has some fantastic wineries. So, Pinball, you lived in rural WA. Did you have a chance to play it as you were growing up? Yeah, I grew up around pinballs, John. So um, my father has been an operator for 46 years. So um, one of the longest kind of independent operators in WA, at least for sure. He was he was doing it for about 10 years before I was born. So I, How um, and why? Where did he get pinball machines from? So his story was um, when he started, he opened up a pizza and burger shop on the highway in Maroona. I would like to buy a hamburger. 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 
just like a takeaway, like kind of like a late night thing with his sisters, my two aunties, when they all finished school. There was an operator who came and saw that the place was busy and, you know, there's a lot of pizzas and burgers coming out. And he said, oh, I'll put a pinball machine in here. And, you know, they thought it was a good idea and stuff. And then I think the story went that he was initially giving them 50% of the take and then he tried to push that down and he kept trying to push it down further. And I think it got to a point where the old man thought, mm, maybe I should give this a try myself. And what year was this? I may have missed it. What year was this? That was 1976. So he went and bought um, his first couple of pins. I think they were, he was right on that cusp. Like when he was first operating games, there were still EMs, but the electronics were just coming in. So I think he was saying that one of his first was a wizard and he put that in the shop. And I think he had a couple at home before that. Uh, but that was like the first one that he really put out to, you know, to be a purely uh, moneymaker on site or on location. And then, yeah, he um, kind of just went from there. Once he had that one in his own shop, then he started putting them in surrounding towns. So there's other towns in the area like Pinjarra and Harvey and working his way kind of through that southwest and up to Perth kind of area. And, yeah, it was like by the time I came along, my brother and I, so I've got an older brother. Um, he's like the technical expert. I'm more the play tester. By the time we were old enough to come on long road trips and that, we'd go with the old man and do his long drives through the country and do the collections and repairs and all that kind of stuff. So that was, we're talking like late 80s, um, early 90s kind of thing. So went from there and then we've been working on, playing, fixing, whatever, restoring pinballs since we were old enough to know what one was. Right. And was he buying these new in box or was he buying them secondhand from elsewhere in Australia? Uh, no, he's, I think the first first ones he got, I think, were secondhand from other larger arcades in Perth, and he'd kind of drive up to the city and, and buy them and then come back down to Waruna and that and work on them in the shed and stuff and, and get them kind of fixed up if they weren't uh, in the best condition. But he, I think he got his first one he bought from Perth from Strombecker's, which was a big arcade back in the day in Barrett Street um, in the city in Perth. And then I think from there he got involved with um, LAI, if people know Leisure and Allied Industries. Yeah, they had a they had like a, an office and, and workshop in Northbridge in, in Perth and he was buying a lot of games from there. That's kind of when he really got into the new and box kind of phase. But yeah, I think, I think early on he was just kind of grabbing what he could and fixing them up because he always liked to actually work on them himself and, and get them right and then put them out. So is this a full-time job for him or was it a hobby? No, uh, he's the kind of person who has a lot of energy and he, he actually worked a full-time job. He was a shift worker at uh, an alumina plant, uh, the Bauxite refinery, um, which is kind of the main industry in our town. He grew up on a farm, but by the time he was an adult, it had kind of taken over and the town had like a large refinery there and, and most of the people went from farmers to working there. So yeah, he worked there for a very long time. He worked there for about 26 years, I think, shift work and in between shifts and on his days off, he did his, you know, arcade business. And then, yeah, he kind of got to a point when I was a teenager that he thought, you know, 
I've been doing this long enough and I don't really want to keep doing the, the other job. So he gave that up and retired. And for about the last 20 years, he's been just doing. So is he branched into kitty gambling machines? Um, no, Redemption was never really that big for us. We had some games like your stackers and your winner every time and those kind of games, but not like the full-blown, you know, like ticket machines and stuff like that. It was more just, you know, stuff that you could win, win some prizes. He wasn't really big on skill testers like claw games and that. Maybe in the early days he had a couple, but kind of moved away from that. He's been more about the actual arcade machines. So he had a lot of drivers and stuff. He was buying Daytona's new you know, I remember when I was, I think I was like eight years old um, on the driveway in that carport. There was like a brand new Daytona twin driving game that cost like, I don't know, I think back then they were about 35, 40 grand or whatever they cost. It was a crazy amount of money for the early to mid 90s. Every kid in the neighborhood was kind of running down the street to come to our house and, and um, yeah, play the Daytona. No one even knew what it was because obviously kids in small country towns don't really go up to time zone and big arcades in Perth that often. So... The kids just got a new playhouse. Cletus, you are the most wonderful husband and son I ever had. Yeah, it was a, a real um, real treat. So, yeah, he's had a lot of that stuff, you know, shooting games, all the other different arcades. But his passion and my passion and my brother's passion were all kind of pinball mad. That's that's kind of like the labour of love. They don't make the money that they, they used to make. Everyone kind of knows that. Yeah, that's just what we enjoy doing more. Cool. So have you still got games at home with you and your new family? Yeah, I do. I've got a few here. I've got eight in the shed at the moment. Actually, I can see the CV behind you. I've got a Circus Voltaire in the shed. There's a, a Munsters LE in there. I've got Doctor Who, a Flash Gordon, Star Trek Next Generation, Twilight Zone that plays really well. That one I really enjoy playing. You're not a wide-body racist like a lot of pinballers. No, I don't, I don't really have a problem with wide bodies. You know, I think some of them are really good games. I think, well, especially Twilight Zone and Star Trek, I think they're fantastic games. Um, I do enjoy playing Roadshow. That's, that's a bit of fun. The scene in Perth. Not having got over there for pinball, only over there for conferences. Is there a competition scene? Do you visit each other's houses often? What's the go? Are there barcades? We do have the occasional, you know, social kind of catch-up or like a not-so-serious competition at someone's house on their collection, but we don't do that very often. It's kind of someone, you know, offers it up. But we've set up like an association called WA Pinball in the last couple of years. That's on Facebook, characterised by the Black Swan, which is like the WA bird. Yeah, we, uh, we run comps in a couple of different venues. So we've got a venue where we have about, I think at the moment, there's about 30 pinball machines in Northbridge. So that's called Planet Royale. And um, the arcade section is called Barcadia. So everyone just in the pinball kind of community knows it as Barcadia. Yeah, we do competitions there once or twice a month. I'd like to do them more often, but um, it's a bit of a challenge at the moment. And um, we've got other competitions that... Uh, run by another guy named Roy. He's got um, about, I think, about a dozen pinballs at another location at a virtual reality centre in Northbridge. Yeah, he has comps here once a month as well. And those are like the two main locations where we have competitions. But we're, you know, we're trying with WA Pinball, we're trying to get more people involved and we're trying to get um, other locations to kind of uh, volunteer their games or or if they've got games that are at the competition, you know, standard that can be played and not have too many complaints, um, you know, that's what we're trying to get involved. If you run a pinball competition, you are going to get complaints. Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Hello, miss. 
What do you mean, miss? Oh, I'm sorry, I have a cold. Yes, yeah, that is true. Uh, <laughs> and, and sometimes it's just the game's too hard, the game's too easy, this switch doesn't work, um, when, you know, and then you go and you hit the switch and it works. But, you know, there's a lot of all that kind of stuff that goes on. But yeah, when you've, got, when you've got quite a few, like we do at Barcadia, you can always just like, you know, deactivate one and, and chuck something else in. On the Facebook group for Pinball Oz Wide and Sell, there seems to be a roaring trade in people buying and selling games in the Perth area. Is there a large collector base there? Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of dormant collectors that have, you know, games at home who either didn't know each other or somehow are now like connecting a bit more. And I don't know if it's because of the competitions or because of those Facebook pages, but... Yeah, there's a lot of people who are swapping games that aren't even advertised, so they'll just talk to each other at different different events and stuff, and they'll um, and do deals. And then, yeah, on, on Facebook, there's a lot that, that are kind of being bought and sold. But like WA, for people that don't know, WA has like a large mining industry, and it, there are a lot of people that have, they have a lot of disposable income, you know, and people that work away, and when they get home, they want to get back to their house and have their, you know, collection or their man cave, and some people into cars and some people and other things and the ones that are into pinball well that's what they do do you get across the east coast much yeah i do um obviously the last couple of years have been a bit tougher but um yeah previously i would uh, money for just you know um events or sports or other things like that not so much for pinball i'm pretty i'm pretty new to the competitive scene um, i didn't even know it was really a thing until only a few years ago and I remember a few years ago when Neil McRae from England came up and punched me again because there's a competition at the big events. Whoever travels the furthest gets a prize. And whenever I go and Neil goes, Neil gets upset at me because I'm further than England. And I thought, well, I've got this wrapped up until a young woolly boy from Perth turns up to Indisc out of the blue and says, hello. <laughs> what made you come all the way over to Indisc when you weren't really aware of competitions? So I'd only been playing in competitions for a few months before that. So I kind of started around August, I think it was, in 2019. And that was, that in disc was in January 20. 2020. Uh, yeah. I went over, what kind of led up to that was I went over for Marty's uh, comp, the Silver Ball in Melbourne. I think that was in the October in yep. 19. So I just kind of discovered this world of competitive film. I thought, this is great. You know, it's something that I'm really into. And I didn't realize that so many other people that actually play this competitively and you know, that can only be, you know, more fun, the more challenging that you, you find the competition. So I went over to Melbourne Silver Ball and I really enjoyed it. I took the old man to that and um, enjoyed the kind of show side of it as well. There were a lot of games there that were just, you know, being displayed and people could play and, and obviously the competition was happening. Um, I wasn't aware of at this point that, you know, larger competitions do tend to go for a long time. So it, it was funny because I actually booked our flights back to Perth on the Sunday night when the finals were on. And that's a huge mistake, <laughs> as you know. Um, so I haven't done that again. Yeah, I didn't end up making it. I, I got to like the quarterfinals, I think, of that one, um, the Melbourne Silver Ball, and that was like the first big competition I went to. Luckily, I did bomb out because if I had gotten to the semifinals, I would have had to like push our flight back or something. So after that, I had a bit of a taste, and I thought, oh, you know, like, you know, it would be really cool. Um, I had some time off work as well, and I thought it would be really cool to go over to one of the bigger ones in America. And then I found out about Indisc, and I've been watching a few YouTube videos because, you know, Carl and that are really good at recording and, and all their um, streaming, and that's really high quality. So I thought, oh, you know, India sounds great. And the old man had been telling me for years about a place in California that had, you know, hundreds of games in this small town, you know, inland from LA. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll, you know, I'll go check that out. That, that can only be 
good fun. So yeah, it was kind of like a last minute thing. Booked flights, I think, a week before and then just jumped over there and I thought, oh, yeah, I can, you know, I can do this. I can go and play against the world's best players. You know, what, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, yeah, so it was just kind of like a learning experience. Um, I really wanted to see the actual museum itself. I'm glad I went now since it's closed. But um, it ain't no more. But you can be modest. You only played for a couple of months and then you decided to go in the high stakes, which is, what, $50 an entry? Yeah, so they do something at India Square... It's like fifty dollars a card for for high stakes. And I think the the main comp, the open, is like twenty dollars a card. But there was a thing where you get you pay a hundred dollars and you get I think it was like one hundred twenty or one hundred thirty dollars worth of cards across the classics, um, the main and the the high stakes. So I thought oh, I'll just do that, and I ended up going through quite a few cards for the for the main, and I wasn't really getting anywhere. I wasn't used to the card format. I'd never done it before. And I just kept finding, as a lot of people do, that, you know, you have a few go-to games that you feel good on, and I'd get three or four on the card that are really good scores, and then, like, one or two of them would destroy the card for me. So it got this happened for days, you know, and the cut line kept getting, you know, the scores kept getting better and better as, as I go. And so I got, like, I think it's right at the end of qualifying for the high stakes, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to... I've got a card here, you know, I'm going to give up on the open... I'm just going to chuck in a card for the high stakes and see how I go. And I think it was that attitude of not really caring so much anymore because I, I, was, I was really nervous and, um, you know, the pressure of the competition and stuff and, and you, you just keep trying to play the same games over and over. And I think the change helped. So I walked over to the high stakes bank and I just, I think it was like nearly midnight and they were closing for that night and it was on the, the last night before the finals. And I just put in a couple of scores and I got really good scores on a couple of the machines in the high stakes uh, bank. And I remember there was only seven machines and the card was four so you know you had to play four out of the seven um and i got two good scores and then the next day when i came in in the morning because at indisc it goes for like 14 hours a day i came in and i managed to get a couple of like decent scores on the other two machines as well and i think i qualified ninth so and they got more people in the high stakes than what they were thinking they were going to so i think initially they were expecting the finals to be eight or twelve people or something like that but they ended up being 16 so once I got my card in at ninth, I thought, gee, I might actually, I might actually make this. So, um, yeah, I ended up qualifying ninth and, and getting into the finals. Now, how'd you go first round? First round, so uh, finishing ninth, so it was one eight nine sixteen was my you group. Play number one. Yeah, and number one was Trent Augustine. Yes, Trent. Um, yes. Number eight was Johnny Modica. Oh dear. Um, so he, I played. So in the lead up. This is probably going back a couple of days, but in the lead up to Indisc, I actually landed on a Tuesday, I think it was, and I, I literally got a hire car. I'd just flown close to 24 hours to get to LA because I threw, flew through your neck of the woods. I flew through Brisbane. So I was nearly five hours to Brisbane, and then I was at the airport there for a couple of hours, and then it was, what is it, 12, 13 hours to LA. So I'm completely wrecked, and I left on a Tuesday morning, and I got to LA on a Tuesday night. Because of the time difference and that. Yeah, I got in a hire car, drove three hours in LA traffic to Riverside. It's about um, one kilometre, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It wasn't that far. Um, it was not that far at all. I thought, gee, this LA traffic is definitely not what I'm used to in Perth. And then I got to Riverside, to this place called Riverside Game Lab, which is a, a cool place. It's got a mix of pinballs and arcades and stuff. And I just rocked up there because I heard that there was like a lead-up tournament. And I thought, oh, if I can make it, I'll get there. I think I got there. 15 minutes before they closed entries to the tournament after driving three hours and flying for nearly you know, nearly 24 hours or whatever it was. So I'm pretty wrecked at this point. I think I just 
I thought I'll just give it a go and that. And the funny part was, was that it was a flip frenzy and it was like a top four finals. And I made the finals of that. I think I qualified. I think it was like second or something, but, and I was, I was surprised myself, but then Johnny was in my group. So it was kind of ironic that then when I got into the high stakes finals at Indus, I played Johnny again. But by then, I'd been having a few chats with him and, you know, getting to know the rules of a lot of games that I didn't really know. I didn't realise how many games are used in those competitions in America that we don't have in Perth or in other parts of Australia. Because we do get a lot of the same here um, with the older games. But, yeah, so then Johnny was in my group again at Indus, and I thought, oh, here we go. So then when I got into that group at Indus, it was Trent and Johnny and Jim Belcito. Yeah, so he, I think he scraped in and finished 16th, and I'd heard about him. I thought, gee, he's a good player, and I think some of the games in the high stake bank were actually his. They're um, most of them, nearly all of them were his, yeah. Yeah, so then we played the first game, and um, it was actually one of the ones that I'd played in my card, and it was Stargazer, Stern Stargazer. And I like the older games. I guess that comes from playing a lot of older games when I was when I was little. Yeah, I just had a really cracking game, and yeah, I think that was one of Jim's games, and I think the, I think the score of about 3 million. Which was it was the highest score of the weekend. I'm pretty sure that whole weekend in this, and it was a good time to do it too. I think it was about two million in one ball. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is not bad. I'm going okay here. So I picked up uh, picked up the four points there, and then obviously Trent was he was choosing the games. I think the next two games were the two that I hadn't played. And yeah, so then uh, that was another lesson I learned in this. So there was the card lesson, and then there was the Play every game in the bank. Because Indisc is not like other tournaments where I think you get practice. It's literally, there was no like 30 second practice before you play. It was just you walk up and, and you plunge and you go. So, yeah, I played, I think, High Roller Casino, which is like an early 2000s stern from memory. Um, and I don't think we ever owned one of those. So I don't think I ever played one literally ever in my life. So I played that and did not do well at all. And then the next one was a Grand Lizard. Oh, the old Grand Lizard. It's a System 11, I think. Um, yeah. With so the play field and the drops up the top. Yep. Yeah, keep it up the top or else you're dead type thing. Played that and did not do well on that either. So I ended up going first, fourth, fourth and got knocked out. So it was four zero zero points. And Still a great thinking, experience. And playing with those yeah. guys, it's great to watch and appreciate just how skillful they are. Oh, amazing players and learning a lot of skills that yeah, I didn't I didn't have at that time. Um, yep. Definitely, definitely some good lessons there. And I came eleventh and then. I think looking back on it, I think the top 10, I think every player in the top 10 was in the top 50. So I thought, gee, you know, that's, that's you know, pretty good effort. So. Yeah, it's a very good effort, I'm telling mm. you. And are you coming over for the Brisbane Masters? I am. I am. I've, um, yeah, I've managed to get, get some flights, get a hall pass to go. So, so you get yeah. to face the world number one who's coming over, of course, as you left off. We've got him coming back. So you'll get to play him and see how you go against him. We all enjoy a good game against Escher. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. Um, I think it was Escher and Colin Urban came over a couple of yes. years ago for Brisbane yep. and really dominated. They took home every first and second, apart from one flip frenzy that uh, PJ won. But they took home all the prize money. Otherwise, they just get badly it out who was coming first and who was coming second. And of course, we had Bowen Karens here who took third. Oh wow! Okay, just in case. <laughs> so this year we've got we have got Colin, we've got Escher, and we've got Steve Bowden coming over. So that that'll probably be first and second wrapped up in all the comps again. Yeah, but, I really I really enjoy Stephen at, at the major competitions because I really love his commentary. I yes. think he's, he's so his knowledge of the rules is fantastic, and he explains the games in a way that I think anyone can understand. So I really do when I'm watching, for example, like 
the recent world championships and stuff. He was on the he was on the stream for a while talking. I really enjoy it when he gets on there. So I'm, I'll yes. probably pick his brain in Brisbane a bit. <laughs> if I can. And they're always willing to share. They're very good. They're very good yeah, sharing yeah. knowledge of the games, especially if you haven't played them before. Yeah, the top players generally are, in my experience. That's why I brought up Johnny Modica. He was very helpful. I just won a game on Stargazer. We're in the high-stakes finals. It's kind of everybody's really competitive and wants to win, but I'm standing in front of High Roller Casino saying, hey, Johnny, what do I do? <laughs> and he was actually telling me, you know, oh, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. So, yeah, I really appreciated that. I think that's really good for the competitive community that people have that attitude. Tell us a little bit more about your tastes in life, especially being way over there in a almost foreign country in WA. Uh, what's the music scene like? What's your favourite music? Oh, I'm a bit of a an older music kind of person. So I think from an Australian point of view, you know, the hometown heroes over here are definitely ACDC. Um, they're a Western Australian band. Yeah, they're you know, very popular here, especially, like, you know, being from down near Fremantle and that. So... I do like ACDC, also like Cold Chisel, which is another band that you'd know from the 80s, and Hootie Gurus and Midnight Oil and these kind of... I haven't had a Hoodoo Gurus call yet, so I get to slip some Hoodoo Gurus music in. Oh, nice. I particularly enjoy. You're yeah. a relatively young guy. What year were you born? Uh, 1986. So You're naming all the bands from my era. <laughs> I was born well before that. Well, Anything new over there? Yeah, yeah, so some new bands. Like there's uh, Birds of Tokyo. Pretty popular. There, there's also from a kind of a psychedelic kind of feel. There's a band called Tame Impala. And they do psychedelic slash electronic kind of stuff. Um, they're very popular. They're from over here. Eskimo Joe were pretty popular in the early 2000s. And Pendulum, so people that like kind of drum and bass and that kind of stuff. Uh, Pendulum, I think, are pretty well-known globally in Ethan Perth as well. Aussie movies. What's your what's your favourite memorable Aussie movie that you've seen? Well, I'm trying to stick with a WA kind of theme here because I know, you know, a lot of people on the East Coast, you know, don't really pay attention to what happens in WA so much, but... Oh. Um, you know, besides yourself, John. You know, but uh, <laughs> but uh, no, we one of the probably the biggest actors that come out of WA is Heath Ledger. And he says, "Why so serious?" He comes at me with the knife. Why so serious? He sticks the blade in my mouth. Let's put a smile on that face. Um, there was a movie that he did, I think it was just before he got his big break in the US, and it was called Two Hands. Go! Was that you on that Bankstown job today? Didn't know you could handle yourself so well. I got a lot of work coming up. I could use another set of hands. Well, I did see a chick called Sharon drop a big pile of cash up. There are no two ways about this. If you don't find the 10 grand, he'll kill you. What's happened, Jimmy? One of the new guys. First day on the job, and he rips me off 10 grand. I think it's from about 99. It was basically, I think he's in King's Cross and he's working at a, at a nightclub. I think he's on the door or something. And then he gets, 
somehow he needs money and he gets involved with a big crime boss out there. I think it was Brian Brown who yep. plays. He's a yes. very well-known Australian actor. He's, you know, how many movies he's been in. But, and then he kind of gets in trouble with the crime boss. I think he loses his car or something. I and think he loses their money. Yeah, he loses the money. And then there's something to do with a car as well. Um, not, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I just remember the movie having a lot of really classic Australian cars, a lot of good Fords and Holdens in the movie as well, like a lot of like 70s cars and 80s cars and stuff, which is pretty cool. And then, like, yeah, his girlfriend gets in trouble. He has to try and save her. I think they kidnap her or something like that. It was almost a bit like uh, Lock Stock or... Yeah, those kind of. sort of gangster theme, tough, gritty movies. Yeah, and the storylines of different characters kind of intertwining and all coming together. Yeah, 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 all coming together. It's a bit like that. Yeah, especially at the end of the movie. Um, that ah, no spoilers. No, no spoilers. But it is definitely like those kind of films where everything kind of comes together and the characters cross paths. Film. I think Rose Byrne is in it too. I think that's the girlfriend. She was. She yeah, was the, girl, the, the love interest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, cool. That's, that's, that's not a, not a movie that's come up before. So that's good. What's your favourite holiday spot when you have to get away from the big smoke of the southeast or Perth in particular? Yeah, I mean, you, you named it before. I think anywhere down the southwest is very beautiful. You know, you've got Dunsborough and Margaret River and Bustleton and that kind of area yelling up. There's a lot of beautiful coastal towns down there and some excellent beaches. Not that we're short of beaches in Perth. We've got some amazing beaches in Perth. Yeah, and then yeah you've like, got some things that like to nibble you off the beaches in Perth when you surf as well. Yes, yeah. WA tends to have every... No, Australia's got a reputation for things that can kill you, but I think WA's kind of got <laughs> nearly all of them. The Great White Sharks, yeah, they're pretty prominent off the coast of WA and, uh, yeah, jellyfish and stuff like that. And then we've got all kinds of snakes and everything, but... One thing I know about Aussies, Aussies don't give a shit about stuff. <laughs> Aussies are so understated. Like, a volcano could erupt in the middle of Queen Street and someone would go, it's a bit hot. <laughs> Day after 9-11, I'm in the plane, right? It was a storm and lightning hit the plane. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. It doesn't do anything to the plane, but it makes a massive bang. It sounds exactly like a bomb. We're on the plane, we all hear this. <laughs> Everybody just went, oh. <laughs> I look out, the wing's on fire. The bloke next to me looks at the wing, looks at me and goes, that doesn't look good. Do you reckon? Fucking <laughs> wings on fire. That's pretty shit in my books. I mean, of all the things you don't want to be on fire, wings would be number one. Captain's face, number two. <laughs> You're getting back to the holidays. Uh, Esperance is beautiful as well, but I think my favourite would have to be Coral Bay, which I'm not sure if you know where that is, but it's about... It's about 1,100 k's north of Perth, and it's it's where like the Ningaloo Reef is. Being from Queensland, you know you've, you guys have got a slightly bigger reef, but um, the Ningaloo Reef is beautiful, and there's a lot of wildlife there, and the beaches are stunning. And Coral Bay is kind of one of those holiday towns that's it's like a one street town. So if you want to just go there and relax, you know, stay in the caravan park or or whatever, it, it's really chill. There's not a lot to do there, but if you wanted to just enjoy the natural beauty in that it's amazing the weather is good the, the beaches are amazing it's just it's really lovely. it's west australia's bonnie dune from the castle ah yeah that's right that's right i was, I, I was thinking bonnie dune i've heard that before yeah no, um, we have to have a castle mentioned every episode you see yeah yeah it's, it's a recurring theme but uh, and uh, and you haven't taken up the hobby of kicker quokka oh no you don't kick quokkas 
No, there are a couple of backpackers that got in trouble actually for that, and I think one of them might have. Um, I think he, I don't know, he'd like tried to light on fire or something like that with a deodorant can or something silly and got jailed for it. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was. It was you know a bit of an outrage at that because we love our coffers over here and we don't want to see anyone harm them, especially because they're very friendly. You know, on Rottnest Island, so that's an island. About twenty k's off the coast of Fremantle, and yeah, all the, the it's full of quokkas, um, and it's kind of like their main habitat. They're, they're, I think they're on the mainland a little bit, but they're mostly on, on rot nest. And you go over there, and you know, they just come up to you, and you can pat them and stuff. And yeah, the island's not very big. You can ride a bicycle around it in a few hours and stuff, and it's just got beautiful beaches and stuff there as well. And I think that's kind of the theme in WA is that we've got really good weather over here, and I think we've got the beaches to to kind of capitalise you know, with that weather. So, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person I think Australia in general is not really about the cities. I think if, you, no. if you're coming to Australia to go to cities, then better places to go. I think Australia is kind of starts when you leave the city. I agree 100%. Mm, yeah. And WA, you know, we're very sparse and there's a lot of area and uh, we've got a quite a small population relative to the area. I think it's only like two and a half million people in the whole state. So it's, you know, there's a lot of space and a lot of places that you can go and be on a beautiful beach and you're the only person there. So tell me, back to pinball, what's your favourite game at the moment? My favourite game is, I know people won't see this, but it's actually right behind you, Deadpool. Love it. Fourth wall break inside a fourth wall break. That's like 16 walls. Absolutely. Yeah, my favourite game at the moment. I think the theme integration, I think the, the layout's fantastic. It's got very satisfying shots. I think the com- the comedy of the callouts. It's a very funny game, and I think that kind of, you know, is underrated in a lot of pinballs. I think the pinballs that I tend to like are the ones that are, you know, that have a bit of comedy in them and make you laugh, and you can really enjoy your game. It smells like old lady pants in here. Yes, I'm old. I wear pants. But you're no lady. The music's cool. Uh, the artwork. Uh, there's not. I think it ticks pretty much every box that a pinball needs to tick. It has good rules. It has good modes. Yeah. At the moment, it's probably my favourite. Great. So. Uh... Well, but I like all George's games. I mean, I think I've owned them all. I, um, right back, apart from Corvette, because you never see it. But I love uh, Johnny Mnemonic. It's one of the only two games I've bought more than once, just because I miss it. And when one comes up, I buy it again. All the way through there, Batman 66, I owned that. And uh, the rules on that were fantastic. But Deadpool is just like an all-encompassing game that you can get a beginner on and go hit the little fella, and you'll get a multi-ball. So it's, it's great for the uh, beginners to play to give them to something, and then the team-ups to defeat the villains. First time is fun, second time is fun, and then we get to the Megalocracker something asaurus. Megalocracodonus Rex, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's such a good feeling to get there. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, an all-round good game. And, and your secret shame game, the game you play that you don't think other people enjoy as much as you. <laughs> My secret shame. Oh, I think I think Black Knight gets a bit of a bad rap. What number? One, two, or three? Number three, sort of rage. Um, only because for me, I really enjoy games that are really difficult um, in terms of like the shots and it being really brutal. That if you miss a shot, the game punishes you. Um, I think you know Deadpool's kind of an easier game, and that's why it's my brother and I say it's you know it's a game that's easy to love. You know, beginners can play it, experts can play it, whatever. But Black Knight's kind of if you're not a you know, experienced pinball player and you walk up and start playing it, you probably won't enjoy it because it is very difficult. You know, it's very hard. And, yeah, any mistake kind of goes straight back down the middle. So 
Uh, what about the upper play field? I assume you like the premium LE? I do. I, I can see how it's probably not a good game for tournaments because, you know, you can play it for ages. You can keep it up the top. Um, even with the modes, like, you, you know, you've got to do a few things on Black Knight to start a mode. But then once you're in a mode, if you hit up the top and you hit the small target next to the catapult, it'll just spot you every shot as you go. So you can just keep it at the top and keep hitting that little target and basically clear out a whole mode. So if you if you get up there and hit the target five times, you'll probably finish a mode, then you go back down the bottom and light your next mode and then kind of do it again. So in that way, once you are up the top, you can kind of get through it. And I can see that also, you know, taking ages in competitions with good players because they'll just, you know, they're risk adverse and they just won't let the ball go down to the bottom play field. They'll just keep it up there and keep going. People travelling to West Australia, you said you've got a Facebook page for the West Australia Pinball Group. What's it called? Yeah, it's called WA Pinball. So, right. yeah, WA is obviously the abbreviation for Western Australia. And basically got a black swan holding onto a, a pinball, and that's kind of the logo. So, yeah, we're trying to build that at the moment and get as many people involved. And, um, yeah, we put all our events on there. There's an events tab and all the competitions that are happening. So next time someone decides to go for a long drive, they know how to contact you. <laughs> Just a, a little trek across the Nullarbor, which has got the world's longest 18-hole golf course in case you mm. are into golf and you want to play a very long golf course. I think it's every 200 kilometres, I think, is another hole, something similar. Yeah, it spreads um, across <laughs> WA and South Australia. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Along the side of the road. So you can do that as well on the trip over so you're not bored driving across this great friggin' desert. <laughs> mm. So with the long experience of a childhood being put into enforced slave labour by your father to maintain games... What can you share with uh, game owners as far as maintenance? That's, that's an amazingly accurate description there, John, but uh, that is pretty much the childhood. But uh, learning with small fingers when I was a kid that the number one thing is to assume that everything in a pinball machine is sharp. I think that's very important. I think a lot of people don't realise that when they look at a pinball machine from the outside that as soon as you take the glass off or you open the door, you have to assume that everything in there can cut your, your hands in so many different ways. And it's not just the steel bits, even some plastics and things can be quite sharp. And then when you're cleaning, you know, you, you run your knuckles against something and you cut yourself and you don't, sometimes you don't even realise until, you know, a few seconds later you look down and go, gee, why is my hand bleeding? But um, yeah, gloves, I recommend gloves. And yeah, definitely assuming everything is sharp and pay a lot of more respect to everything under the glass. The other tip I'd give is, I think you've touched on it before, is to clean often. But I think the longer you leave it and the more build-up you get, uh, it, it is harder to get back to, you know, to perfect condition. So we try and clean our games as often as possible, you know, in busy places, you know, up to once a week can be appropriate. Yeah, I think clean as much as you can without going too crazy and actually, you know, polishing things away. But yeah, clean and assume everything is sharp. What do you use for your cleaning of playfields? Uh, we use uh, either Mr. Sheen, that was the, the popular one back in the 90s. Where does all this dust come from? That's a job for Mr. Sheen. Oh, Mr. Sheen, oh, Mr. Sheen, today's the day to make the house all clean. Which is a spray-on furniture wax polish. Pretty much, yeah. Haven't seen Mr. Sheen. Yep. Yeah, Mr. Sheen, um, or just any uh, general um, furniture polish, so... Yeah, we use other ones that you get from, you know, Bunnings here in Australia and stuff like that. But, yeah, furniture polish, stuff like that. 
anything that you can kind of, you know, either spray onto a cloth or spray directly on the play field and it won't clog things up or anything like that and you can wipe it off and take the dirt off with you. So, again, Anthony, thanks for joining us from way over there in a totally different time zone and educate all us eastern coast bums on the the real part of Australia, which is the west. And I'm looking forward to catching up with you in Brisbane in about four weeks' time. Yeah, thanks, John, and thanks for uh, yeah having a bit of a, a listen to some stuff over here in WA. I enjoyed chatting with you and uh, chat to you soon in Brisbane. Great. Thanks, mate. So there we have it, Anthony from WA in a pre-recorded interview prior to his ascension to the second best finish at the Brisbane Masters against one of his heroes, Steve Bowden. What a great experience for him and what a great experience to see new players coming through and performing so well, especially when they live almost in another country on the other side of Australia. Hope people can get over there for a visit sometime. It's worth seeing. There's some beautiful scenery, some very nice people, and it's worth making the trip. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back again in a couple of weeks' time. And I'll leave you with Tame Impala and one of their songs, The Less I Know. Worth having a look on YouTube if you like basketball, if you like King Kong, if you like drugs and cheerleaders. It's got it all. Interesting film clip again. All right, catch you in a couple of weeks. Again, feedback, Aussie Pinball Podcast at gmail.com. Catch you then. <laughs>